Okay, there's the marching order right there. The church does not function like a ruling, hovering board of people who take the lead and rule with a heavy hand over the church. No, but it is not this way with you. Welcome to That They Might Know. I am your host and Bible teacher, Joe Durso. The following lesson is entitled, Ixnay on Competition. The Christian, as a follower of Christ, must take the lowliest place. Jesus said, For who is greater, the one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as one who serves, Luke twenty-two twenty-seven. From start to finish, the Bible is a book that advocates humility and condemns pride. Psalm 14, 1. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have committed abominable deeds. There is no one who does good. Only a humble man would say there is a God. Only a proud man looking at the complexity and the design of the universe would have the audacity to say there is no God. Psalm sixteen eighteen says pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Proverbs 11, 2 says, when pride comes, then comes disgrace, but with the humble is wisdom. And then Proverbs eight thirteen says, the fear of the Lord is to hate evil, pride and arrogance in the evil way, and the perverted mouth I hate. On the night before Jesus was betrayed, mocked and crucified, he got down on his knees and wash the smelly, dirty feet of his followers. How do I know they were smelly and dirty? They, worked on, they walked on dirt roads where all kinds of animals did their business. They, he washed dirty, smelly feet. The God of all creation took the lowliest place. The master of all became the servant of those for whom he would die. Where then does such teaching leave the behavior of those who make up the church of Jesus Christ? Let's look at what the Bible has to say. No nation in the history of the world has a beginning like that of Israel. Abraham is chosen out of a people to be a, start a new race. And so they multiply in the land, and he leaves his country, and he... Then, in time, this people, because of a famine, find their way into Egypt. In Egypt, they grow and multiply greatly to the point that they frighten the Egyptians and they enslave them and eventually begin to kill them. Out of this, God delivers the nation of Israel, brings them through the famous Red Sea, and divides the waters, and does ten miracles, and literally decimates the land of Egypt. The people then go into the wilderness. It's an 11-day journey, but it takes them 40 years, because they were disobedient and a hard-hearted people. And this people, as hard-hearted as they, they are, 
they compl- constantly complain before the Lord. So they didn't have meat. Well, meat goes bad when you're in a wilderness. So God, in his wisdom, gave them the right type of food to eat, but it wasn't good enough for them. And so they complained. And at that point, we read in Numbers chapter 11, verses 16 and 17, The Lord therefore said to Moses, Gather for me seventy men from the elders of Israel, whom you know to be the elders of the people, and their officers, and bring them to the tent of meeting, and let them take their stand there with you. Then I will come down and speak with you there, and I will take of the Spirit who is upon you, and will put him upon them. They shall bear the burden of the people with you, so that you will not bear it all alone. Great idea. Of course it was. It was coming from Almighty God. And he wanted to share this so the people didn't go crazy. He wanted to kill Moses, which they usually did. And then we go on and read verses 26 to 30. But two men had remained in the camp. The name of the one was Eldad, and the name of the other Medad. And the Spirit rested upon them. Now they were among those who had been registered, but had not gone out to the tent. And they prophesied in the camp. So a young man ran and told Moses and said, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. Then Joshua, the son of Nun, the attendant of Moses, from his youth, said, Moses, my Lord, restrain them. But Moses said to him, Are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit upon them. Then Moses returned to the camp, both who, he and the elders of Israel. Now get the picture. The picture is a clear one. It's, it's easy to understand. There's a burden bearing going on among elders, the older people among the group, the people who have some sense about them, and they're going to bear the burden. But God puts the Spirit upon them, and two of them just continue to prophesy in the camp. And this young man, when not told who his name is, goes running over to Moses. He wants this to stop. Something about it that he didn't like. And so it is with Joshua. He actually, with due respect, says, Moses, my Lord, restrain them. He was a man of, of humble, of a humble heart. But, big but in this, in this passage, he stops, Moses stops Joshua and says to him, are you jealous for my sake? And then he says this incredible statement, would that all the Lord's people were prophets. Why? Well, he wouldn't have to bear their burden then. They would understand. They would get what was going on. They would trust God. They would have faith. And the Lord would put his spirit upon them also. This would be great for Moses. But as it was, the people just had a bad spirit. Now, make no mistake. Let's consider and understand clearly what kind of a man Moses was. It says in Numbers 12 and verse 3, this is just verses ahead, shortly into the next chapter. Quote, Now the man Moses was very humble, 
more than any man who is on the face of the earth. Oh, that we had men like Moses today, humble men, discreet men, men who knew how to spend time with God. One term that's referred to Moses more than any other man is he is the the servant of God. Moses was a servant at heart. He was made that way by God. He was a prince in Egypt. God touched his heart. He didn't want to stay with the Egyptians, even though he would rule the greatest nation in the world at the time. He would have everything he needed at his fingertips. Anything he asked for was his. He said he gave all of that up to suffer with the children of Israel because he would rather be numbered with the people who were numbered with God than those who did well in the world but had no heavenly dwelling place waiting for them. So it tells us in Hebrews chapter 11. So what does this tell us about Moses? What does it tell us about the children of Israel? More importantly, what does it tell us about the church? And what does it tell us about what God is looking for in men? Let us look at a quote from the man E.M. Bounds a man who lived about 150 years ago, a a great man of prayer. And I quote, Faith gives birth to prayer and grows stronger, strikes deeper, rises higher in the struggles and wrestlings of mighty petitioning. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the assurance and realization of the inheritance of the saints. Faith, too, is humble and persevering. It can wait and pray. It can stay on its knees or lie in the dust. It is the one great condition of prayer. The lack of it lies at the root of all poor praying, feeble praying, little praying, unanswered praying. The nature and meaning of faith is more demonstrable in what it does than it is by reason of any definition given it. Thus, if we turn to the record of faith given us in that great honor roll which constitutes the 11th chapter of Hebrews, we see something of the wonderful results of faith. What a glorious list it is, that of these men and women of faith. What marvelous achievements are their record recorded and set to the credit of faith. The inspired writer, exhausting his resources in cataloging the Old Testament saints, who were such notable examples of wonderful faith, finally exclaims, quote, And what shall I more say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak, of Samson and of Jephthah, of David also and Samuel and the prophets, end quote. And then the writer of Hebrews goes on again, in a wonderful strain telling of the unrecorded exploits wrought through the faith of the men of old, quote, of whom the world was not worthy. All these, he says, obtained a good report through faith, end quote. What an era of glorious achievements would dawn for the church and the world if only there could be reproduced a race of saints of like mighty faith of like wonderful praying. It is not the intellectually great that the church needs, nor is it men of wealth that the times demand. It is not people of great social influence 
that this day requires. Above everybody and everything else, it is men of faith, men of mighty prayer, men and women after the fashion of the saints and heroes enumerated in Hebrews, who, quote, obtained a good report, report through faith, end quote, that the church and the whole wide world of humanity needs. Many men of this day obtain a good report because of their money-giving, their great mental gifts and talents, but few there be who obtain, quote-unquote, a good report because of their great faith in God or because of the wonderful things which are being wrought through their great praying. Now remember, this man is speaking about 150 years ago. Continuing, today, as much as at any time, we need men of great faith and men who are great in prayer. These are the two cardinal virtues which make men great in the eyes of God, the two things which create conditions of real spiritual success in the life and work of the church. It is our chief concern to see that we maintain a faith of such quality and texture as counts before God, which grasps and holds in its keeping the things for which it asks, without doubt and without fear. End quote. So it is that we need men of faith, according to E.M. Bounds, a man who wrote, you can read eight volumes by E.M. Bounds uh, on faith and prayer, on prayer in particular. So do we need these men today? Well, I think we do. I think we need revival. I pray for a revival constantly. I hope you do as well. But then there comes this matter of the need for humility. And it's humility, really, in this portion that I was reading, quoting to you, that really is the powerhouse behind faith and behind mighty praying. In Luke 22, verses 24 to 27, we get an eye into what Jesus thought the kingdom should be made of and explains it with no shortness of words uh, to the disciples. Quote, And there arose also a dispute among them, that's the disciples, as to which one of them was regarded to be greatest. And he said to them, that's Jesus said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those who have authority over them are called benefactors. But it is not this way with you. But the one who is the greatest among you must become like the youngest, and the leader like the servant. For who is greater, the one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as the one who serves. Now let's take just a, a short look at what Jesus is telling these men who are disputing over which one is greatest. That's a, a heck of a thing. A, a crazy thing. In the presence of the Lord of glory who heals people every day, who teaches like no man has ever taught before or ever will teach again. And the disciples had the distinct privilege to be in his presence three years straight. And so Jesus turns and says to them, 
the kings, this, the kings, the rulers, just like we have presidents today in democracies or rulers on the earth, these kings of the Gentiles lord it over them. They lord it over. They take the might and they take the power, even in democracies, and unfortunately become corrupt at times. But they, they, they lord it over. They take the first place. And those who have authority over them are called benefactors. Like we don't pay taxes and all the tax money is meant to be basically distributed accordingly as it would need to protect a nation. That's the number one thing is the military because the world goes to war. And they take the money as though it's their own. And, and they look at themselves like they're doing a good thing. Wait a minute. It's our money. We work hard for it. You're just supposed to manage it on our behalf. I'm not trying right now to get political. I'm merely pointing out what Jesus is pointing to. He's pointing to Gentile nations, not a nation meant to be ruled by God. All nations should be ruled by God. But he called out Israel. And he set up the Ten Commandments before them, and he laid it all out, how it should be. And the Gentiles are not like that. They lorded over one another. Israel was never even meant to have a king. And they wanted a king. We want a king like all the other nations. He said, okay. And that's what God does according to Romans 1. You want to go that way? I'm going to let you go that way. And he lets us. You want to go into sin? You want to be disobedient? And he lets us do our thing, and we pay Uh, according to the consequences laid out by God, according to our evil deeds. But the nations set up men to rule over them, and they look at them as benefactors. That's what they call. But, Jesus said, it is not this way with you. Okay, there's the marching order right there. The church does not function like a ruling, hovering board of people who take the lead and rule with a heavy hand over the church. No, but it is not this way with you. But the one who is the greatest among you must become like the youngest. Who's the greatest? Is this a person who has mighty deeds, has a lot of money, has great intellect, like Ian Bounds was talking about? No, the greatest are the men of faith. What is a man of faith? A man of faith is a man who's humble. He waits on God. He prays. He trusts in God. His being is wrapped up in God, not himself. He's not there to magnify himself or his rule over other people. He is to see God ruling over people. So what does Jesus tell us? And this is his last, his, his final words, go into all the world and make disciples. Here's the marching order. No ruling, not like the Gentiles do, but disciple makers. People who invest their lives in the lives of others so that others will follow Jesus Christ. Teaching them to observe, observe all things that I told you. That's what the marching order is, to teach what Jesus taught. To get people's eyes on Jesus and to multiply. You know, physically, 
We're a race. And Jesus sent Adam and Eve out, go forth, multiply, and fill the earth. And that's how it works. We all know how it works. It's propagation of, of, this, of, the, of the race. We become families and husbands and wives. And, and the husband leaves his mother and his father, and he clings, clings to his wife, and a new family begins, and that family brings forth, kind of in the concept of the navigators, a lot of one-on-one. In the church, it's about discipleship. Jesus grabbed 12 men, and he poured his life into those 12, and those 12 minus one, one added one who defected, one who was apostate, one who's never really an apostle. He, he invests himself in 12 apostles, and those 12 apostles then go out and they do the same thing. Now in the church today, the church is really big and being big. If you got a thousand people, you're doing well. Somehow, size is greatness. Well, Size is what God makes the church. Any man who knows the Bible, any man who humbles himself before God to study the word understands that God chooses. Ephesians 1, you can't get away from it. You can't get away from it in the New Testament. God chooses whom he will save, whom upon whom he will show his grace and his mercy and his forgiveness. Left to ourselves alone, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. No one gets into heaven on their own merits. That's why it's called grace. For by grace are you saved through faith, and not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, a gift, not of works, lest any man should boast. No boasting in heaven, no good works in heaven, only grace and mercy and forgiveness. And God is not required to show that on any man. If he shows it on anyone at all, it's grace, it's goodness, it's mercy, it's love. That's what the kingdom of God is. That's what the gospel is. And that's what Christ sent us out to do, to teach and to admonish and exhort men. And it's about discipleship. And so if it's 10,000 people get saved in a city, does it matter if they all congregate in one place? What matters is that people are being responsible as disciples, as disciple makers. Everyone according to their gift, But in in households, in communities of people where they're they're accountable to one another, they're responsible, there's teaching. Should it be organized? Well, of course, it's, it's nice when it's organized. It's great. God is a God of order. It should be orderly. But what that looks like, how that works out in the New Testament, is not always the way it's worked out in history. I mean, the, the, the church was lost for 900 years due to Catholicism. And then you had your priests and your bishops and your cardinals and your popes. And you had this whole lording over the members who were nothing, really. It's always the ruling class. Then you have the Reformation. At the Reformation, the gospel is retrieved. But what does the church look like? Does it look like a large group of men all of which, and women and children, being responsible to go forth and make disciples? Or does it look like a ruling class pulling their hairs out to get the people to do what they should be doing? 
Now you tell me if people don't look at men in ministry and say, well, I can't do that. I haven't gone, you know, for four or five or how many years, you know, to school and college and seminary and get taught all these high words and all these ideas. And I'm not at all against learning. I've been studying for 45 years. And I continue to study all the time. Why? Because apart from studying the Word of God, we know nothing. We can teach nothing. We can disciple no one. It's not about not studying. It's about energizing the church to do just that. It's about energizing the church to be good disciple makers. To disciple one another. And not everyone has the gift of teaching. But you know, there's a difference between the gift of faith and the fact that all men are are called to live by faith. The just shall live by faith. If you're justified by the blood of Christ, you have a responsibility. We all do. We've, We've been given so much, those who are in the church. We've been given life, abundant life. We've been given the hope of a future that's incredible. A new heaven and a new earth where there's no sin, no fear, no disease, no death. All of that is given to every single child of God. And every single child of God has a responsibility before Jesus Christ to live a holy and obedient life. That's not just given to people who receive the calling to minister. Now, praise God for people who receive a calling and know that they are sent to go forth and to live according to what God has dictated and given in their life to be. I don't have a problem with that. I have a problem with the, the way the church is ordered. And it doesn't matter that I have a problem. I'm just sharing what I think most, almost everyone should have a problem in the church today. The problem is, are we all living up to our responsibility? Are we all pulling our weight, whether it's mothers in home discipling children along with their fathers? Or men in the church discipling other people. Getting together in groups and pulling the weight. I am am giving a short summary today. This is just one in a series of messages. I'm just laying some groundwork here. And it's, it's, it's difficult to understand because that's not how we know the church. We know the church as a building. The church is not a building. It's not made of brick and mortar. The, the people are, make up the church. The people are the church. The people are those who are called out of the world, uh, who are filled with the Holy Spirit, are regenerated, are born again, and make up the church. When, when Paul writes letters to the church, he's not writing to a building. He's writing to the church at Philippi or Galatia, the the churches of Galatia. It's a church of, in a place, but what's in that place is people. So it's not a building that costs $8 million and it takes all kinds of money to keep that building going that's used once a week. No, the church is people. People with gifts. People with dwelling in them is the Holy Spirit. People called to live a holy life and to, to hold one another accountable and to encourage one another and to teach one another and to grow in grace. Teaching has always been a problem 
because we live in a world where there's the world of flesh and the devil. The world just wants its selfish ways, its sinful, corrupt ways. Most people have a conscience. Not all people are as bad as they could be, can be very deceptive. Many people call themselves Christian and they take the name of the Lord in vain because they're not really Christian. The church, in the, the true church, is called out of that world but faces that world. And because they're not perfect, we all face the flesh because we were prone to wander from the God that we love. And we face the devil. No small foe, a problem from the beginning in the garden, caused Eve, a woman without any sin, made good in the day that she was made, uh, but left in the garden with the devil, fell into sin, and her, brought her husband along with her, and he chose to stay with the woman rather than God, and we have a sinful world. And we who are the church have to fight those battles, and uh, those battles are filled with three foes that are all easily deceived and like to deceive and like to deceive people, and they, they want to suck them in to their same place, particularly the church, because they don't want the church taking members away from them. And this is the battle. So the deception is, how does the church function? How should it function? How should it function according to the teachings of Jesus Christ? We'll look at that further in weeks to come. I hope that you enjoy this study. I hope it gives you plenty of food for thought. I hope that you will follow this in the future. And I hope if you have questions, you'll go on my website and write me. Uh, crossboundu at gmail.com. Uh, click, on, click on a link and, and let me know what you, th you think of this study. And I, I just hope that you're blessed by the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and what the church is meant to be. Lord bless. Amen.